Carly Ryan was lured from her home and murdered in 2007. Her mother then made it her mission to find justice for Carly and to make sure this didn't happen to anyone else's child. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. I cannot believe it's been about a month that I've been putting out the show by myself, and I appreciate everyone who has given me feedback and support and just kind of stuck it out with me a little bit as I'm figuring out this solo hosting. Tonight's case was researched by Kate Morris, so thank you so much for your help with this one. I do want to let everyone know at the top that this case does involve violence against a teen and grooming behaviors. As always, I'm not going to be graphic or any more graphic than I need to be, but you know if this is the sort of case that you'd rather skip. This case takes place in South Australia, and it starts in a small town called Stirling. It's right outside of Adelaide, and the population is less than 3,000 people. But we all know when we have the internet in our homes, it doesn't really matter how small our town is. We're suddenly connected to millions of people across the globe. In 2006, Carly Ryan was a 14-year-old teenager in this small town. There was not a lot to do in Sterling. It was one of those towns that just closed up as the sun went down. Anything she wanted to do was in Adelaide. Adelaide was just a 20-minute drive away, but it might as well be forever when you're 14, you're bored, and you can't drive. Carly and her friends would occasionally take the bus into Adelaide, which took more like 45 minutes each way, and they'd do that whenever they could. Carly and her mom, Sonia, were incredibly close. Sonia was just 20 when Carly was born in 1992, and she was single. So it was really just the two of them until Carly's brother joined the family. Carly grew up to be outgoing and friendly and very caring. She was always busy worrying about her friends and are they okay and what is their current source of teenage angst, and she just really cared about what was happening with them. And that may have surprised some people who met Carly when she was 14 years old with her black clothing, her thick black eyeliner, her red lipstick, and the overall emo look. Carly was into alternative punk, and she looked the part. But the parts of this subculture, if you like, that she loved were the music and the fashion. She didn't take on a depressed or moody affect to go along with it. There is an American television show called NCIS that has a character who really fits with what I'm saying. So some of my listeners may already have this concept of someone who is 
emo or punk or goth or whatever in their fashion and in their interests, but they're still an energetic, upbeat, and happy person. But this whole judge a book by its cover stereotype will come into play later with, you guessed it, the media. And we'll get to that. So Carly was an outgoing extrovert in a small town. So she spent a lot of time with friends. And so when the internet became a thing and social media became a thing, she started spending more of that socializing time online. And that is completely relatable. At one point, she had a negative experience with a local group of friends. She was out with them and they were drinking. Having not really experimented with alcohol before, she drank far too much, far too quickly, and ended up hospitalized with alcohol poisoning. Her mom said that she saw this kind of draw a line between Carly and some of her more experimental friends because she didn't want to end up that sick again. So she started avoiding them a little bit, which pushed her more towards social media. And the website she visited the most is the same one that everyone else visited the most in 2006, and that was MySpace. MySpace launched in 2005, and it was the largest social media platform until 2008 when Facebook surpassed it. Carly's time there was mostly spent talking to friends and posting about music. Her screen name on MySpace was, quote, Synthetic Slut, which I think shows a bit of the edgy persona she was putting out into the world at that time. And frankly, that's what the teen years are for. You're supposed to try to figure out who you are by trying on a few different options. And it was through a real-life friend on MySpace that she met a boy who lived in the Melbourne area, and his screen name was Corrupt Koala. She was 14 at the time, and he was 18 when they started talking. And if you can remember back to 2005, when Carly and some of us old people were starting our MySpace pages, this was when we were all vaguely aware of the dangers lurking on the internet. We were aware that we were giving strangers access to our inner thoughts, and we knew that we should know the people we're talking to before giving out too much information. But this was before internet safety and being a digital citizen were part of school curricula like they are now. The first parenting books to hit the shelves about kids and internet safety, those were just coming out. And we definitely did not have the net nanny technology that we now have. Even so, Sonia was concerned enough that the family computer was kept out in the open in the kitchen. So if she walked by, she could see what Carly was doing. This was not so much for reading over her shoulder, 
But just that awareness of a parental presence, that can be a pretty good deterrent for a lot of kids. Carly did have a cell phone, but not with the internet capabilities that would make it a concern quite as much as it would be today, and certainly not as big of a concern as the internet on her computer. This situation, though, on the surface seemed actually safer than Carly taking the bus into Adelaide to hang out with her friends and friends of friends and their friends. Now she was at home, hanging out with her friends online where her mom could see her. It looked and it felt safe. Carly was also open with her mom about what was going on with her online life. So Sonia knew about corrupt koala from the start. She knew that his real name was Brandon Kane, and Carly was just so excited to tell her mom about this cool guy who was interested in her, who played the guitar in a band. He loved all the same musicians she did. Brandon was into this emo punk scene. He had traveled a lot farther than Carly ever had. He was born in Texas before being adopted and taken to Melbourne by his adoptive father, Shane. He traveled the world. This online friendship grew romantic, and they exchanged email addresses and phone numbers. So whether on the internet or on the phone, they talked pretty much every day. Sonia was doing the mom of a teen thing, where you're debating how much do you supervise and how much independence do you give. So what she decided to do was use her own MySpace page to keep an eye on things. She looked through Brandon's photos and his posts. Everything seemed pretty normal. Carly and Brandon would exchange I love yous and Sonia At this point, she's in her mid-30s. It's not like she was that far removed from her own teenage years. I'm sure she remembered what it was like to be 14 and infatuated. The one area where Sonia was concerned, though, was that as Carly approached 15, the online photos she posted started turning darker. Not just ones of herself, but also artwork that she was drawn to the pictures of herself started looking a bit more sexual. And we're back to this whole trying things out stage of the teen years. This is all really normal. I honestly wonder from time to time what I would have posted on social media at that age, and I'm pretty relieved we didn't have it back in the Stone Age. Anyway, Carly's 15th birthday was approaching in January of 2007. What she really wanted was for Brandon to come to her birthday party. But Melbourne and Adelaide are a good eight hours apart by car. So it was a pretty big ask. Unfortunately, Brandon was going to be in the United States on her birthday and couldn't go. But his father, Shane was traveling to Adelaide for business. He worked in security. Brandon had some birthday gifts for Carly, so he asked if Shane could stop by and give them to her. Carly thought 
That would be great. But Sonia was not that thrilled. Brandon was one thing. He was a teenager, barely more than a child. But having a grown man they didn't know show up at their house was outside of her comfort zone. But Carly largely talked her into it, though Sonia said she had to meet Shane in a public place without Carly before she was going to let him anywhere near her house, anywhere near her daughter. So three or four days before the party, Shane flew to Adelaide. When Sonia met him, he was wearing a polo shirt with his company's logo on it. She asked to see his ID, and he showed her his security badge, and the logo on that matched the logo on his shirt. He seemed like a run-of-the-mill 40-something-year-old dad. In their conversation, it came up that Shane actually hadn't figured out any accommodations for the trip, so Sonia invited him to stay at their house. This is how disarming he was. She went from wanting to see his ID to prove his identity to inviting him to stay overnight at her house. And this change came over the course of a single conversation. When they went to the house, Shane gave Carly the gifts from Brandon and she opened them right away. They included lingerie, which seemed like a bit much to have your dad bring your girlfriend lingerie, but this turns out to be the least creepy thing that happened. While in Sterling, Shane brought Carly to the mall in Adelaide to buy her more gifts. He spent about 400 Australian dollars on t-shirts and lingerie and costumes. A store clerk said she noticed Shane was looking through the dressing room door at Carly as she tried stuff on, but Carly didn't seem bothered by this. So the clerk brushed it off as just an odd dynamic. Then on January 26th, 2007, Carly had her 15th birthday party. Shane had already been at the house for a few nights at this point. Her friends came over to the house and Shane hung around. He spent a lot of time hovering around Carly and her friends, and that struck people as a little odd. He was a 40-something-year-old man, after all. Then someone overheard him saying something to Carly about how he loved her, and then later he saw her talking to another boy and got upset with her, he started saying things like how Brandon wouldn't like it, that she was talking to other boys. But all of that weirdness aside, the party was fine and everyone left to go home. Then the next morning, Sonia woke up and she walked past Carly's room. She saw Shane in the bed with Carly. Both of them were asleep. They were on top of the blankets and their clothes were on, but this was obviously so far over the line. Sonia woke both of them up and kicked Shane out of the house. Shane packed up his things while acting pretty darn offended that Sonia was implying that he was a pedophile. And I don't think Sonia was implying anything. She was probably outright stating it. 
But anyway, Shane was mad when he left. After he was gone, Sonia sat Carly down and asked her what was going on. What else, if anything, had happened? So Carly told her a few of the alarming things. One thing was Shane told her that Brandon wouldn't mind if she had sex with him, meaning with Shane, with his father. Carly turned him down, thinking that he was, quote, gross. And he also tried to talk Carly into kissing one of her girlfriends at the birthday party while he watched. And then there was another time where he put his hand up her shirt. Carly didn't want any of this, and she wanted him to stop. But she was worried in the way that a 14, 15-year-old might be, that if she offended the father of Brandon too much, Brandon wouldn't want to be with her, and then she would lose the love of her life. So while she turned Shane's advances down, she tried to still be polite about it because she was worried about what Brandon would think. Sonia, however, couldn't care less about what Brandon thought. She emailed Shane and told him that if he ever contacted Carly again, she would report him. She would report all of this behavior. In return, she received a very nasty email from Shane, calling Carly a liar and saying that he would sue for defamation if she continued to make such accusations. Sonia wasn't convinced that Shane was going to stay away, so she took Carly's phone and she began limiting the time Carly spent online. She increased her monitoring, and as far as she could tell, neither Shane nor Brandon were contacting Carly over the next three weeks, except Brandon was contacting Carly. Sonia still had to go to work. While she was able to limit the internet, she couldn't completely limit the home phone when she wasn't there. Brandon started calling that line while Sonia was at work. Shane still stayed away, and I'm going to guess here, just having been a teenager, having teenagers, that Carly very likely reasoned that Brandon wasn't the problem. Shane was. Brandon was never the issue. So was it really breaking the rules if she talked to Brandon but still didn't talk to Shane? But to some extent, Carly had to have known she was breaking some rule because she wasn't telling Sonia about this. In mid-February, Brandon told Carly that he could come to Adelaide finally to see her. This would be their first chance to meet in person. There was a catch, though. The only way to get there was to take a ride with his dad. Carly was not supposed to have anything to do with Shane, and she certainly didn't want to, so she pushed back. But Brandon said this was the only way he could get there. Otherwise, he was going to have to cancel. Shane could just drop him off. It would be fine. Carly wouldn't have to see Shane. So Carly, without telling her mother, said yes. On February 19th, 2007, 
Carly told Sonia that she was going to meet up with some friends in Adelaide for the day. And then she was going to spend the night with one of those friends. Sonia said that was totally fine and made sure that Carly had her cell phone back just in case she needed to call home. She remembered that Carly stopped getting ready multiple times to hug her. And then when she left around 4 p.m., she called back that she loved her. Later that night, Sonia got a random check-in text from Carly saying that everything was fine. Then the next morning, February 20th, Sonia got a phone call from a complete stranger. He said that he found a purse on a footpath near Port Elliott Beach, which was nowhere near where the friend Carly was staying with lived. The stranger looked in the purse for identification, and whatever he found pointed him towards Sonia's number. When he described the purse, Sonia realized this was Carly's purse. Sonia called Carly's cell phone and couldn't get through. So then she called around to Carly's friends. No one had heard from her, and no one had seen her the night before. Now, Sonia realized that Carly was missing, and possibly had been since she left the house at 4 p.m. the day before. Her next call was to the police to make a missing persons report. As Sonia was relaying Carly's description, the officer knew immediately that Carly had already been found. She matched the description of a Jane Doe found murdered at the beach earlier that day. It was around sunrise when a woman who was walking along the beach at Horseshoe Bay, an hour south of Carly's home, noticed something floating in the water. It wasn't until she got closer that she realized that it was a body. She needed to get someone to help her drag the body to the shore. CPR was attempted, but it was too late. When the police arrived, they found nothing to indicate who this teen was. She had no ID on her, so it wasn't until Sonia's missing persons report that they had any way to identify Carly. Her body was sent for autopsy, which showed that she had 19 separate injuries. Some were lacerations and defensive wounds, but the worst were the blows to her head, probably six to eight of them, and serious trauma to her face. Carly was found fully dressed, but with her clothes disheveled. It looked like either a sexual assault happened and she was redressed, or at the very least, an attempted sexual assault had taken place and her clothes were left a mess. The cause of death was drowning and facial trauma. Due to the amount of sand in her esophagus, it was believed that the attacker held her down with her face in the sand first, and then she was left to drown. There was a massive search on the beach and in the water for any evidence. They did find some jewelry that was Carly's, and they found a fingertip piece from a latex glove, but they weren't quite sure how that would fit in just yet. The main thing investigators needed right now were witnesses. Did anyone see Carly on the beach or in the area the night before? 
And it turns out they had not just people, but CCTV as well. So, looking at the security footage around the town, Carly was seen in multiple locations throughout the area with two men. Witnesses were able to give a better description of the men. A couple who saw Carly from about 8:30 to 9:45 at the beach said that one of the men she was with was old enough to be her father and the younger one was closer to her age. There were a few witnesses who reported a light blue car in the area with Victoria plates. Investigators also did a digital search of Carly's computer to see who she was talking to before she left the house. They could confirm that she had logged into her MySpace page the day before. While I've not seen it spelled out in the media reporting, I'm sure Sonia told them about Brandon the musician and his super creepy father, Shane. And with the witness reports of two men, one older and one Carly's age, plus the Victoria Plates, which is where Brandon and Shane were from, and I'm sure it was becoming very clear to investigators who they were looking for. The problem was that nothing Sonia knew about Shane panned out. The security company he worked for didn't exist. Brandon's MySpace profile, it was deleted. No one with the names Shane and Brandon Kane could be found. So while police were tracking down leads and conducting these physical and digital searches, the media was reporting on this case without a lot of information being released by the police. It was a shocking crime, so of course it made headlines. But let's dial back a decade and think about the start of social media. This was one of the earliest cases where the victim had a large digital footprint that could be scoured by the media for information. Today, I think we almost can't remember a time when this was the case. If you watch news reports now, so many of the pictures of the victims and the suspects are taken right from their very own Facebook accounts. And I like to think now, with 13, 14 years of social media experience, that we are getting a bit more savvy in evaluating which pictures are being chosen and why. Why is this news report showing me the picture of the victim smoking a joint rather than showing me his high school graduation picture? Why are they showing me a picture of a young woman at a bachelorette party rather than the one of her at Christmas with her family? Because I know both of those are on her page. What story are they trying to sell? Or what are they doing to try to get me to click on their link using this photo? I mean, these pictures catch our eye and they send a message. And we're starting, I hope, I think, to be more aware of that. But here we are at the beginning of this, where we weren't necessarily evaluating things this way. So here we have Carly. She was a bright vibrant 15-year-old. She was the mama hen in her friend group. She had no enemies. She didn't hate the world. The world didn't hate her. But what we're seeing from the media 
is her being flattened into one thing, this dark emo girl who got killed. The media took the emo slash goth slash punk slash whatever image and ran it as risky behavior that Carly was into this dark counterculture and there must be a connection. This must have led to her death. Thankfully, investigators were not so easily swayed by a few photographs. 11 days after the murder, something amazing happened. Through thorough and laser-focused police work, they tracked that light blue car with Victoria plates to a man named Gary Newman. He was a 48-year-old man living outside of Melbourne, and when they approached the house, they saw the car in the driveway. And they even saw a security badge on the dashboard, which had been reported by witnesses. They executed a raid on his house, which worked in their favor because this surprise arrest did not give Gary enough time to log off of his computer because when he was arrested, he was busy chatting with a teen girl. Also arrested with 48-year-old Gary Newman that day was his 17-year-old son, who I'm going to call Joseph. Originally, both names, Gary and his sons, were suppressed by the court. Joseph's real name was suppressed because he was a minor. And Gary's name, being outed, could possibly reveal Joseph's identity. So the entire trial happened with the media not being allowed to report either name. But obviously, I'm using one of those names, and we'll get to why that is later. But let's back up to who Gary Newman even is. First, as I'm sure you've guessed, he is Shane. This is his real identity. He's also Brandon. His son, Joseph, the 17-year-old, was actually in foster care for most of the period that Gary was grooming Carly. He had only returned to his father's home a month or so before her death. So Joseph wasn't Brandon this whole time. Now, he was very likely Brandon when they traveled to Adelaide when Carly was killed. But Gary, for the most part, was Shane and Brandon, though we cannot completely rule out Joseph posing as Brandon at different points. By 2007, Gary had been divorced for several years. He had been married for about a decade. He and his wife had three children together, two sons and a daughter. Gary was abusive to his wife. He would physically assault her. He was incredibly controlling. It was this coercive control that we are thankfully talking about more in terms of intimate partner violence. He wouldn't allow her to do things like get a driver's license. He would demand that she turn over her paychecks from work. He pressured her to work in a strip club when she didn't want to, which was leaving her with little opportunity to leave, few means to leave, and a lessened sense of self to get the power to leave. And then, of course, he isolated her from friends and family. One time, he beat her just for asking him if she could go 
spend time with a friend, not even going, just asking to go. In an interview with the Herald Sun, where much of this information about their marriage came out, she also said that he once got their 14-year-old daughter drunk and attempted to rape her. He was into extreme pornography, generally of younger teen girls. And his ex-wife, who, for many reasons, I'm sure, does not want her name published, did eventually get away from him. And it's not entirely clear how things settled with custody and assets and all of that. And that's really not our business, nor is it relevant to the story we're talking about tonight, except to say that in 2007, Gary had two of his three children living with him. One was an adult son, who I'm going to call Anthony in this episode, and then Joseph, who, like I said, was only there for about a month before the murder. Gary also didn't work in security. Surprise, surprise. The identification he showed Sonia was fake. The logo on it matched the logo on his polo shirt because he had the shirt specially made to sell his story. That's how much he planned this. He was unemployed, and he filled his days posing as various young men from around the world. And he would customize these profiles to the likes and the interests of the teens he was grooming, exactly like what he did with Brandon for Carly. He contacted girls all over the world, not just Australia, And when he was rejected by one girl located in Singapore, he said that he was going to leave her looking like raw meat for rejecting him, which tells you that this underlying rage against young girls who, quote, rejected him was boiling for a while. But let's talk about the level he took this to, because I found this really interesting. He kept detailed notes on everything. He had notebooks and notebooks just filled with information. He had over 200 logins to various profiles that he created. His notebooks had information on the various girls, their likes, their dislikes, the characters he was making up for them, and their contact information. He was able to keep all of this straight because he was so organized about this And everything he did was so detail-oriented, like the logo on the shirt and the card. I think it's interesting because I don't think we always appreciate the level at which some predators are operating. And by underestimating them and their abilities to do things like this, to keep these notes and keep all these stories straight, that's putting us at a disadvantage. We have to expect that... The predator talking to our child on the internet has it together to be convincing. We have to expect that. Now, how he worked this with Carly was that he designed Brandon to be a bit of a template that would fit in with some girls he saw on MySpace in general who were into the punk scene. He would kind of cast his line at one, and if she didn't bite he'd look at our friends list and start chatting up the next and so on. So when one of Carly's friends introduced them online, he was able to start molding Brandon to be more specifically what Carly wanted. 
So while Brandon, to everyone else, was into punk music, all of the sudden, his favorite bands were her favorite bands, that sort of thing. He got it more and more specific to target Carly. And that's what I mean by not underestimating what some predators out there are doing. But here he was now. The police were raiding his house, and he was unmasked as the predator that he was. And he was sitting there on all of the evidence, all of these notebooks and papers and profiles. He had tried to delete signs of his contact with Carly from his computer, but a lot of that stuff can be recovered fairly easily by people who know what they're doing. They also found two pieces of paper in his home, one that had Carly's information on it and labeled her Adele Slut, meaning Adelaide, and then another paper said R.I.P. Carly Ryan. There was another interesting bit of evidence collected from the house. So Gary and the son were calling Joseph. Both had sand in their shoes, which wouldn't be unusual since they have beaches in Melbourne, except they did an analysis of the sand, the sand from the beaches near where they lived and the beach at Horseshoe Bay in South Australia where Carly was found. The sand in the shoes matched the Horseshoe Bay, South Australia sand. They were also able to recover DNA from the latex glove, that little fingertip remnant, and that matched Gary. So the evidence against Gary is piling up. And Gary decided to go ahead and admit he was at the beach with Carly, after all, but still denied that he killed her. He claimed that he met with her and drove her and Joseph to a party. He offered her a ride home, but she turned him down. When he left her with Joseph, she was alive and well on the beach. And honestly, there was no direct evidence linking him to the murder. It was all linking him to the town and the beach, but there wasn't evidence found on her body like DNA that would link him to actually being the one who killed her. But this circumstantial evidence, there was a lot of it. And you know what they call circumstantial evidence in court? Evidence. The Crown was going to take this to court. Gary kept insisting for the two and a half years it took for this to go to trial, he didn't do anything. But Joseph didn't quite have the same story. While he was in detention waiting for trial, he confessed to a social worker. He told about the ruse to get Carly to meet, quote, Brandon. Gary had talked him into pretending that he was Brandon, and so he did. He said that his father attacked Carly from behind after she turned down his sexual advances, and started walking away from him. Joseph said he did help covering it up. He went as far as sending Sonia the text from Carly's phone, but he insisted he did not kill Carly, and he didn't know that Gary was going to. When this went to trial, Joseph was now 19, so he's technically an adult, 
But since the crime still had happened when he was a minor, the name suppression was still in effect. The court immediately excluded all the evidence about Gary pursuing other teen girls as it was considered prejudicial. But most of the evidence that his defense tried to get kicked out stayed in. The men were tried together with one jury, and the trial took about three months. Gary acted erratically. He argued with his attorney, and it got to the point that his attorney wanted off the case. He asked twice to be removed. He felt Gary was purposely sabotaging things. But he didn't get his wish. He was stuck with this guy. The trial was very heavy with the forensic evidence. The cell phone tracking, computer analysis, sand particle experts testified, DNA experts testified. They even had someone come in and talk about the tides at the beach. This case alone would make the longest Forensic Files episode known to man. But to me, the most compelling testimony actually came from Gary's oldest son, the one who was living with him, who did not go with him. We're going to be calling him Anthony. I just really hope that's not actually his name, because if so, that's my bad. Anyway, Anthony was about 19 or 20 when the crime occurred. He said that his father went to Adelaide for the birthday party and returned home very upset. Now, he did just get caught in bed with a teenager and kicked out of the house. So yeah, he was probably upset. He asked Anthony to be part of some murder scheme to get back at this girl. And Anthony thought Gary was just, I don't know, blustering, venting, using hyperbole. He didn't think he was serious. He was just expressing how mad he was. And he also said something about wanting Joseph to go back to Adelaide with him. But Gary's behavior in general was very off. Anthony felt like he was changing. This talk about hurting a teenager and including his sons in it, all of this made him feel like there was just something very wrong. And so he decided to move out of his dad's house, get some space. He said he left behind a letter that he characterized in the trial as, quote, abusive. He left this letter for Gary, and it basically told him in no uncertain terms that he was not being a good person, leave Joseph out of whatever he was thinking about doing to Carly. And he was really trying to, from what I understand, shame Gary about the way he was acting, shame him into stopping. Joseph and Gary went to Adelaide, as we now know, this is when Carly was murdered. And when they returned, Gary told Anthony that he, quote, got the job done. And then he showed Anthony the back of his hand and asked if his knuckles looked bruised because he had punched Carly when he killed her. Anthony also testified that Joseph said something about hooking up with Carly while they were in Adelaide. But Anthony said that he took that to mean kissing, not sex. He testified that if his brother meant sex, he would have bragged a lot more blatantly about it. Gary took the stand to deny everything, and he really seemed to think he had an answer for everything. 
He said the fake identities were for a book he was writing. He said he never used his real name online because he was avoiding identity theft. And he insisted that not only was he not attracted to Carly sexually, even though she was an attractive girl, he was actually asexual and had no sexual attraction to anyone. He also pointed the finger at his son Joseph a bit, saying that he was the one who was actually behind Brandon the whole time. But he said he took Joseph to Adelaide to see Carly and said that Carly was alive on the beach when they both left. They didn't hear about the murder for three days. Eventually, the case was given to the jury, who deliberated for 10 hours. Now, during these deliberations, they sent a note to the judge asking if they could find one of the men guilty of manslaughter and the other of murder. This is something that isn't always clear to the average Joe when two people are tried together. And obviously, the jury, or at least some of the jurors, also weren't sure. The trials happening at the same time is for the sake of streamlining the process, not because the two cases are equal. And this is a disadvantage of being tried with your co-conspirator or your partner in a crime. The jury may conflate the strong case against the other guy with the case against you, which may be considerably weaker. This judge, though, was great with her instructions back to the jury. She cleared this up. They could find different verdicts for the men. And she also told them that they had to be sure that both men participated in the killing when determining guilt. The jury came back finding Gary guilty of murder and Joseph not guilty, murder or manslaughter. Between the verdict and the sentencing, Gary changed his story a bit. Well, more than a bit. Through his lawyer, he admitted he did cause Carly's death, but claimed it wasn't his intent. He said that there was an argument that broke out and he acted violently, but he didn't intend to kill her. He certainly hadn't gone there that night in order to kill her. This was a case of manslaughter, not murder. However, at the sentencing, the judge pointed out that latex glove fingertip that was found with his DNA on it. Why would he wear latex gloves in the middle of the summer at the beach unless he was planning on committing a crime? She said he may have left open the chance that he wouldn't kill Carly. Maybe he left open the possibility that he wouldn't kill her if she didn't reject him, but that he was prepared to kill her if she did. He went there knowing that's what would happen, and that's what happened. That is premeditated murder. So on January 21st, 2010, Gary was given a life sentence with a 29-year non-parole period. He will be well into his 70s 
before he's even eligible for parole. It was at this point that the name suppression for Gary was lifted. Media outlets had argued to the court that Gary shouldn't get to use his son as a shield against having his name published. However, his son, who was acquitted, still kept the right to have his name suppressed. Gary appealed, of course, but he was denied. The evidence against him was just too overwhelming. Even if the court decided that the things Gary said shouldn't have been allowed in, one of them was Carly's mom's hearsay testimony about Carly claiming Gary touched her inappropriately, even if that was excluded, even if they kicked out everything Gary complained about, it wouldn't have changed the verdict. There was just too much evidence still there. It was then reported a few years after Joseph's acquittal in Carly's death that he actually went on to pursue teen girls and served 35 months in prison on sexual assault charges. It's unclear exactly what he was charged with and what happened and all the details because his name is still suppressed. So in those cases, they've suppressed his name so it doesn't link him back to the Carly Ryan murder of which he was acquitted. So basically, this name suppression, which was meant to protect an innocent 17-year-old originally, is now protecting a guilty 20-something. Now, Carly Ryan was the first Australian to be the victim of an online predator, and among the first in the world, if not the first. This parenting in the social media age was a whole new ballgame with a steep learning curve. And Sonia wanted to figure out a way to make navigating this easier for other parents. So in 2010, when the trial was over and Gary was convicted, she started the Carly Ryan Foundation. They provide resources and training on internet safety to parents and kids and schools and community groups. Sonia doesn't want people to forbid their children from being on the internet. She doesn't want them to decrease the independence that teens should be exploring. What she wants is for everyone to do it safely and with the tools they need to spot unsafe situations, to spot organized and calculating predators like Gary Newman. Another thing the foundation does is offers an app called Thread. It's a GPS locator app, and it has all the function for the person using it to be able to alert for help with the single press of a button. It is not currently available outside of Australia, but what it does is it will alert the contacts in the phone and, if needed, emergency services to the location of the person using it. It's really designed for teens, but it could be used by anyone, and hopefully it will become available in other markets soon. The name of this app, Thread, comes from the fable about a young girl whose suitor lived inside a cave. 
she asked her mother if she could go visit him. The mother was worried, but didn't want to keep her daughter from living her life and finding happiness. So she handed her daughter a thread from the edge of her skirt. She told her to hold on to it, and if she felt she was in any danger, she could pull on the thread and her mother would lead her back to safety. This particular app was a dream of Sonia's because it wasn't lost on her that Carly had her cell phone with her. Obviously, we don't know how much time Carly had between rejecting Gary and when he attacked her as she walked away, but it wasn't enough time for her to make a phone call. But maybe it would have been enough time for her to hit a button. The next thing Sonia did was in 2017, she got a law put into effect called Carly's Law. This law criminalizes predator grooming behaviors, like lying about an age online with the purpose of talking to someone under the age of 16. It also allowed for stiffer penalties for adults who proposition minors for sexual acts even before they act to carry them out. It's designed to stop predators before they act. It's designed to acknowledge that the predator's act happens before they even physically hurt anyone. Before that predator attacks this girl, his contact with her online is wrong and it is a crime. And if convicted of violating Carly's law, the penalty can be up to 10 years in prison. Within two months of this law taking effect, the first arrest was made. A 35-year-old man, already a convicted sex offender, was charged because he lied about his age and gender to talk to children online. I think the Carly Foundation just says it best in stating their mission. Quote, The internet is part of our daily lives. It is essential that children, teens, and young adults learn how to navigate the World Wide Web safely. 